Hello and welcome to the Dobcast. I'm Erica Stacey. Today's guest has built a strong personal brand around his special skill for navigating the digital and social media landscape from a legal perspective. Lawyer Paul Gordon is frequently contacted about and tagged in questions such as, can I post this? What should I do about? Is it okay to? And more. So in this episode, we discuss the three questions Paul is most commonly asked regarding the legal aspects of online marketing and activity, and the one topic he wishes people would ask about more. This episode explores copyright law, including the difference between the US's fair use and Australia's fair dealing laws, reposting content, who must take responsibility for what's posted on and about an online account, what constitutes online defamation, privacy, and more. Paul also shares with us what he is learning at the moment and his one tip to help you be prepared to do your best online. Thank you very much for joining me on the Dobcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so firstly, you kind of are known as the online lawyer, so we could actually <laughs> do we could do a whole episode all about personal branding because you have definitely created <laughs> a very strong personal brand as the online lawyer and get tagged in all sorts of posts <laughs> in groups that we're a part of and probably a heap of other things that we, that we see as well. So thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, we are going to chat through some of the common questions that you get asked in your capacity as the online lawyer. I'm going to have to have a t-shirt made saying that now. (laughs) (laughs) A heap of merchandise, I can see it now. So so before we jump into it, can you just give anybody who doesn't know about The Online Lawyer a bit of a background as to who you are, what you do, and how it is you came to be doing what you do now? Absolutely. So um, I'm from South Africa originally, if anyone wants a random pieces of trigger about me, came over to Adelaide when I was young and have been here ever since. I studied law majoring in commerce and computer science. And so when I came out of law school, I really was looking for something that would use all three areas that I'd been looking at. So I started working in a lot of technology-based law and, and businesses, so startups, and I still do that work today. But as I went through, I, I've always been, I guess, a bit of a geek and, and very much into online and, and what's happening there. And I noticed that people were coming across legal issues on social media that no one was really talking about. And this was around about 2010 through to 2012. And I was starting to go to marketing conferences and social media conferences just to see what, what the um, landscape was. And there was just no one talking about the legal risks of what happened. And you're not going to be a killjoy, but there were these significant legal risks that were arising. And so at at that point, I just started really uh, reaching out to people within the the community and and just finding out more about their businesses and what they were doing and getting onto Facebook groups. And and that really has been the, um, the biggest thing for me is that I, in terms of developing a personal brand, it's in my mind, all about putting stuff out there, helping people. And if you help people, then I, I'm a strong believer in business karma. It'll always come back and, and it'll, it'll turn into something. So 
from that, I started doing presentations on this. I started writing articles. I you know, contributed a chapter to a book somewhere. I don't even know the name of the book now. <laughs> but if anyone happens to know the book, please email me and remind me. But no, it was from that that I, I developed this practice. I've worked at a number of firms. I'm now here at Warman's, and I'm running the IP and social media law practice here. And it's just a great opportunity to work with really interesting businesses that are doing stuff online. Fantastic. And I imagine it's a really fast growing, evolving area of law as well, because I know just from some of the separate conversations we've had, the law doesn't, hasn't always kept up with the online space. Yeah. So it's, it's a very challenging area to work in. And, and the fact that, that Warman's has that dedicated division now is, you know, identifies that they've seen the need that, that mm. we know is required simply from working in this space. And that's right. And effectively what you're trying to do constantly as a lawyer is use old law that's been developed over decades for new technology and new ways of communicating and new ways of, of dealing with things. So when we look at copyright, for example, we go back to case law from the 1800s, but also the, the seminal case on all of this is a 1970s case about using photocopiers in libraries. So that, if you look at the decision that came out when uh, the Dallas Buyers Club sued IINET, it's all about 1970s photocopiers. <laughs> uh, and we're dealing with you know, cutting-edge technology, or at least at, at the time. And so that's what we're constantly dealing with. And so Parliament will come along and they'll try and fix things and change things, but they just can't keep up. We could talk, probably talk about this for hours and try and solve all of these problems, but you are actually at the coalface of, of doing this all the time. So, so yeah, well, hopefully we can solve some of the, we'll answer some of the questions mm. that a lot of people do have in this space that you do get asked quite commonly because it is a very challenging and difficult area for those of us who are either working solely in digital and social media marketing or small businesses up to large businesses who are using social media and digital to market and communicate their business. So firstly, we need to do the whole legal disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, I guess all I need to say is that yes, I am a lawyer, but no, this is not legal advice. I'm not considering anyone's specific individual circumstances. And if you do have any issues, please contact a lawyer and get independent individual advice about your particular situation. Thank you. We'll include that in the show notes as well. <laughs> so... Like I said, we're going to chat through the, first of all, the kind of most common questions that you get asked about the online space and legal ramifications. And the first one you mentioned already, which is copyright. Yes. So, can people just use any information they find on the internet? <laughs> no. Okay. Um, next. No. Next. <laughs> Moving on. I think the, the, the difficulty here with copyright is that there is a different landscape in Australia to the US. And because the internet is very US-centred, a lot of people make assumptions that, well, if it's okay because they're doing it in the US, it must be okay to do here. And so whilst copyright is pretty uniform across the world, you know, if I have something protected by copyright in Australia, it's also protected in the US, UK, China, wherever, it's the exceptions and the nuances that change from place to place. And the key point is something called, in Australia, fair dealing, and in the US, fair use. And so the question that I get asked a lot of times is, well, I saw this big brand in wherever using Disney content, for example, 
and they're not getting pinned on it, why does it matter if I do it? And the reason for that is that in the US, they have a broader exception to the Copyright Act than we have here. So in Australia, you can only use someone else's content without their permission if you can demonstrate that you are falling within one of several limited exceptions. So those are things like using it for your own personal research and study, using it for the reporting of the news, using it for criticism and review. So if, for example, you are writing a movie review and you wanted to include a three-second clip, that's generally okay because it is for the purpose of criticism and review, obtaining of legal advice and, and, a, and a few other minor exceptions. The other one I do need to mention is parody and satire. So a lot of people think that they can get away with stuff because it's humorous. For memes, you, know, you get the uh, picture from the symptoms, you, you put your, your text over the top, surely that's fine. In Australia, unless you are satirizing the thing that you are using, it is not permissible. Ah. So I might be making comment on some politician and using a Game of Thrones meme to do so, but I'm not satirizing Game of Thrones, I'm satirizing the politician, and so there is a question as to whether or not the fair dealing exception would apply there. In the US, fair use is way broader. It basically says as long as your use is fair and is for a reasonable purpose, including things like parody, comedy, satire, etc., then it is permissible. So that's really where we, we fall into traps here in Australia is that people think, oh, it's okay, it's all, you know, firstly, everyone's doing it, so why don't yes, I do what it? Is, as well? that, is that part of it? <laughs> but secondly, oh, it's, it's, fair, it's fair use. I can, I can do it because it's fair use, which we just don't have as a concept here. Oh, that's really fascinating because I have to admit, while I know little aspects of this, I wasn't uh, familiar with the way that you so clearly defined that differentiation between the US and Australia. And like you say, is, is where we're getting to more of these issues because a lot of the internet is very, um, particularly social media channels, very, very US-centric. When we talk, you know, you mentioned memes and that makes me think of GIFs a lot because people mm -hmm. ask about GIFs. What difference does it make now when social platforms are incorporating GIFs and GIF libraries. So Facebook now have the inbuilt GIF mm. function, both for pages and personal profiles. So you're not, you don't necessarily have to go and source and seek a separate image. It's available within Facebook to use. How does that fall into the fair dealing mm. situation? So I'll have to plead my ignorance because I don't, one piece of information I need to answer that question is, how do the GIFs get into the Facebook library in the first place? I will find out and we will try and include that in the show notes. <laughs> because the, the reason that I ask that is, if I, as a content owner, upload material into a GIF library, the terms and conditions of that library will almost certainly say that I give permission for others to use it through the platform. The way in which Giphy and Tenor GIF keyboard and all of those ones normally get around it is they say that if you upload something to our library, you are warranting that you are the owner of that content. Uh, and therefore, I dare on, say a lot of people aren't. I, that, that is my suspicion. That being said, some big brands do put things up because it promotes yep. what they're doing. So, and, and it's absolutely fine to use something if someone who owns it has given you permission. The difficulty comes in what happens if they don't give permission, someone else uploads it, and then you use it. 
If you don't have their permission to use it, you cannot do so. And you are liable, as is probably Facebook or Giphy or whoever else it is. Mm-hmm. It's just such a challenging area. And like you said already, we, we look around and everyone's doing it. Because I know like just you know, working within the social media space, one of the big challenges we have for those of you know, us who are, you know, consider ourselves to be social media professionals, uh, we like to abide, uh, abide by Facebook's competition and promotions guidelines. Mm. And then we often see a lot of pages and brands actively flaunting the guidelines and encouraging tagging and sharing to yeah. win and all of this kind of stuff, which, and then, you know, con- you know there's regular questions with people going, you know, ha- have the guidelines changed? It's like, no, here they are. The link is still the same, yep. <laughs> but everyone's doing it. And we're not always seeing individuals and brands being held accountable, even by Facebook, who's setting out these guidelines so it makes it even more challenging to try and educate I'm sure on your part it, with what's yeah. actually right and wrong and what's legal and illegal and, and you're absolutely right and we see it quite a bit in what in new businesses cropping up who are making a, a commoditization of copyright infringement of things so by that I mean there are companies that photographers can register their photos with and those companies will do reverse Google image searches to see who's using that image and then shoot off an automatic letter of cease and desist and if you don't pay me X thousand euros I'm going to sue you in Germany because they're seeing that there is a need to fight back. Without these cases happening everyone is going to continue just ignoring copyright and so we are seeing that happening a lot more and I think that it's going to be a matter of time for there to be some major penalties before anyone's going to pay any attention. I guess that's the concern. If you are pursued for this and you are sued for infringing someone's copyright online, the damages, not not talking about the legal costs, but just the damages can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. Even if you made no money on it, if you're doing it for a purely personal reason, you can still be liable for a bunch of money if someone sues. So there's a real definite risk there. Mm. And it's, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see, like you say, if there are more cases of photographers in particular doing those reverse image searches and, and situations coming up. Because I feel like the media that seems to be most on top of copyright at the moment is the music industry. Mm. So I know particularly with YouTube and yes. a friend of mine's Instagram story got banned couple of weeks ago because they happened to be playing a particular song in the background while she was filming and it was infringing on the copyright of that song Mm. Um, so she hadn't included it purposely in there it wasn't available within the music library so it was really kind of fascinating to know that music is getting jumped on quite heavily but when we talk about image content and you know a lot of gif content and memes and those types of things we seem to be really lagging behind even though there's millions and billions of them Exactly. So, oh, scary times. Okay, so still on the subject of copyright, a couple of other aspects I did want to touch on. So we've talked about just generally using other people's content. And that does delve into permission to share content mm-hmm. as well and like re- reposting, which you know, is quite, yeah. quite common. So, yeah, this, this old chestnut. The position with resharing content on social media is firstly that if you are using an inbuilt function of a social media site, so sharing a post on Facebook, retweeting a tweet, 
absolutely permissible because when someone uploads their their content to the social media platform, they agree to the terms and conditions of that platform which say that you're allowing others to do that. Where we get into difficulty is where people take content out from a social media platform and publish it elsewhere or where there is no inbuilt functionality, for example, Instagram. So there has been some rumbling recently that Instagram is going to change this, and if they have at the time of you listening to this podcast, I apologize. But at this point in time, there is no regram feature provided by Instagram. No, they have the share. You can share feed photos to stories, mm. but not to your feed. Yes. That's, so that's been kind of like a slight step that's been made more recently, um, which some people have said, you know, might be a look at having more of that, that inbuilt reposting or regramming yeah. ability in the future. But at the moment it is limited from yeah, feed to stories and obviously having that, that 24 hour window on your story, yes. unless it's then stored in a highlight somewhere. And so on that basis, you are breaching copyright if you use any of the regramming apps that there are out there because it is not one of the permissions that the copyright owner has given to Instagram to share with you. If permission is sought directly from the person? Go for your life. So as long as you have their permission, you can do whatever they've granted you permission to do. The other thing to keep in mind is that even if uh, you get permission, for example, of a company that owns an image, you might still be breaching the moral rights of the photographer or the artist who created that image unless they have waived them contractually in the past. Oh, there's so many layers. Yep. So basically what that means is you need to attribute the person who created the content when you share it. So that's why it's always a good idea to tag the photographer, the artist, whomever, who created that content when you share it. But also remember, just doing that isn't enough. You still need permission to do so. Yeah, I always feel like that attribution is, you know, and I work with some photographers and that's part of the agreement for the photographs that they take for clients of ours is, you know, they provide permission to share them on certain platforms, but one of those conditions is, you know, you need to tag us and attribute the photos back to us where you can, where there are those on there. And so, yeah, very important, like you say, not to just consider the company or the, or the brand, but that creator mm. um, at, at the start of that as well. And on that same vein, in regards to resharing content, we kind of jump into the whole user-generated content <laughs> space as well and use this hashtag to provide permission to <laughs> – this is a favourite of yours. This is a favourite Is there any legal boundaries, sense, legalness behind use this hashtag to give us permission to use your content? The only circumstance where I can think that could possibly work is if your hashtag was, I hereby give permission to brand X to use my content that is attached to this hashtag, which would be a very long and cumbersome hashtag, but let's get it trending. So, (laughs) Because honestly, otherwise, the risk that you run is that the user who uses that hashtag will simply say, I had no idea that that's what the hashtag meant. Unless you can prove that, firstly, they saw your post about the hashtag, secondly, they understood what it was saying, and thirdly, they agreed to it, then I I don't think you have any leg to stand on legally when getting permission that way. 
Yeah, because many hashtags are suggested these days as well. Mm. So you're not necessarily looking for the origin of the hashtag or, you know, somebody feels like they own that particular hashtag. It may just be coming up as one of the suggested tags that you're putting on there or if you're using one of these tools that generates um, hashtags, recommended hashtags. Sorry, I can say unless it is hashtag I hereby provide permission. (laughs) So uh, I think that there's... One of our mutual connections on one of the social media groups we're on often made it akin to putting up a sign in the middle of the woods saying, if you uh, send me, so if I see you in these woods, I can take a photo and do with it what I want. How are you going to prove they've seen the sign? Yes. (laughs) I love that. Oh, yeah. No, it's very challenging. So I think that the recommendation not legal, specific legal advice, but general recommendation in regards to copyright is obviously have permission, express permission from the creator of the image or the work to before you're actually sharing that piece and ideally provide that attribution to them yeah. as well. The only other thing I'd say is that if the creator and the owner are different people, which is possible, then you might need to navigate through both of those. Yes. And so the last thing I'll say is be very careful where you source your images from because some people have come to me with situations where they have thought they were buying the rights to a photograph from what appeared to be a legitimate stock photo website. It turned out it wasn't so legitimate after all and they got a nasty letter from the photographer saying give me some money, you've uh, unlawfully used my image. And they've come to the end user of it as opposed to, or possibly as well as, as, well as. that intermediary. Yeah. So it's a minefield out there. You've got to be careful. It's just making it tempting. I'm like, I'm not going to post anything unless I took the photo or I personally contracted somebody to take the photos for me. My, uh, the thing I've been trying to get to be a thing is using uh, images from the 1800s ah. because they're out of copyright <laughs> and you can do it with them what you want. So, Hot tip. Yeah. <laughs> Always use images It'll from the like, 1800s. Throwback Thursday. Way <laughs> So cool. Um, we'll include, and if there's any links that you want to provide Paul to include in the show notes, then we'll have them there as well. I have included the links to the Australian Copyright Council um, and uh, Creative Commons in a couple of previous episodes that we've done because we sometimes dabble into mm. into this area. Uh, and I came across a really good article on the Australian Copyright Council site the other day about ten myths about copyright, which is, was quite a useful one as well because there's lots of you know. People think about the whole 10% and if I change it slightly and if I do this. So so that was a good one I'll include as well. Okay, moving on to our next most common question that you tend to get asked about responsibility for what's posted online. Yes. So this is where people, I guess, have their illusions shattered that uh, what happens online stays online and doesn't affect them in the slightest. Because we have now got very clear authority, both from courts, from regulators, saying that not only are individuals who post content online responsible for that content, so are the companies who are tagged in those posts or on whose pages those posts are made. So by that I mean, if I am running a company Facebook page, and someone posts up a comment on my page, and that comment is unlawful for a reason. 
could be that it's a breach of copyright, it could be that it's slanderous, defamatory. Most likely it's where it's misleading and deceptive. If I, as the brand owner, don't take action to moderate that post, I am considered to be liable for it. So very responsible to keep an eye on all of your notifications. Yes, and and that's the thing. So it, it all comes back, and if anyone who's heard me talk, I always seem to pull this case out because I think it's fascinating. There was a case called Algae Pathways, and in that case there was a company who were advertising services where they could cure allergies using a combination of homeopathy and acupressure. And unfortunately, they had no science behind it at all. And so they were taken up on it by the ACCC, and the ACCC said, you should probably stop telling people you can cure peanut allergies by poking them a bit. And they agreed to, but then did so anyway. They were sued for that, but they were also sued because there were people who had made comments on their page on their Facebook page and tagging them on Twitter. And those comments were saying things like, wow, my allergy has been cured. Thank you, Allergy Pathways. When it got to court, Allergy Pathways said, look, fair cop on where we've been saying still, but how can we be responsible for what third parties have said? We didn't ask them to say it. We didn't tell them what to say or where to, to post it. Why should we be held responsible for that content? What the court said was, you may not have posted it, but you had a reasonable expectation of being aware of it because it was on your website, it was on your Facebook page, you were tagging it on Twitter. Having become aware of it, you didn't correct it or delete it. Therefore, you are responsible. Wow. So even with something like Twitter where it's on someone else's, I mean, if somebody posts on your page, then you do have that option to delete the content. Hmm. But if it's posted on someone else's Twitter account, you can report it or respond to it Correct. and make comment, but you're not ultimately responsible. Don't you have can't the authority to delete it, yeah. but because no steps were taken in regards to trying to correct it. Wow. Yeah. And that case has been followed by the ACCC have said that that's the approach they're taking. Advertising Standards Board have taken the same approach. What they have said, though, so before anyone starts panicking and thinks they need to spend every waking hour monitoring their Twitter feed... What you have to do is dependent upon what is reasonable in the circumstances of your business. If you're a multinational, it is expected that if someone posts something that is inappropriate, you're taking it down within hours, if not minutes. If you're a one-person small business and someone posts something up and you don't see it for a day or two, I'm not concerned. They're not going to come after you. As long as you are regularly monitoring, I'd say most businesses should be monitoring at least once a day, just making sure that you understand what's being posted about you and on your pages, and then you take action reasonably quickly after that, then you shouldn't have to worry. Wow, that's really fascinating. And I wonder how many potential stagnant accounts might be affected as well, because yeah. I do come across, I think there was a very exciting time, well, since, like you said, since 2010, where there really has been that that boom in social media in Australia, a lot of businesses setting up a lot of accounts, and some which have, you know kind of end up sitting pretty idle. <laughs> so yeah, not sure it might be a huge opportunity there, but but certainly something to consider if if people have just let their Facebook page or Twitter account fall by the wayside and mm. and aren't checking notifications that there could potentially still be some ramifications of something that they've been tagged in Absolutely. or have posted on their page. Go and find your pages and accounts and check them. Shut them down if you're not using them. Or start using them properly. <laughs> Give your tips there. 
Cool. So thanks very much for that, Paul. That's certainly another aspect to consider there in regards, like I said, that personal responsibility for what's posted, but more importantly, more importantly, they're both as important as each other, the onus on the brand accounts and pages as well. And you did mention there as well something that I wanted to touch on a little bit more in regards to where certain posts that are deemed, you know, to be slanderous or defamatory should be taken care of and and should be kind of dealt with. But that's kind of another whole topic of itself mm. as well because we, now we have these platforms that allow us to post anything and be quite accessible to and have you know access to all sorts of different people in our own little soapboxes to make comment on. And sometimes we don't like those comments. But there seems to be, I know with some of the conversations that I have with people, a bit of a lack of understanding between you know what is actual defamation and slander versus what is something they don't like. Mm. Is that something that you deal with a bit as well? Absolutely. And look, I've got currently, I think, four or five different defamation cases ongoing and 75% of them are social media defamation cases. So it's the new frontier of defamation and it is where we are seeing the majority of action happening. And it's also something that uh, governments are looking at in terms of how to decrease the number of social media defamation cases there are. Wow. But in saying that, the ones that actually get up are few and far between. And the reason for that is that just because you don't like something doesn't mean that you have an actionable case or, more likely, that there isn't a defence. So the way defamation works is that any comment about a person whose identity can be determined, so let's say, you know, oh, that online lawyer guy, um, even though you're not saying my name, you know, I can be identified, any comment that will lower people's estimation of that person is defamatory. So if you make a comment saying that I'm a a terrible person and that I um, should never practice law because I'm completely hopeless, that is a defamatory comment and I wouldn't like that, I'd want something to be done about it. But you may have defences against me uh, claiming defamation. And those defences are things like justification, which means it's true. So, not saying that I'm a terrible person. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> hopefully. Um, so, you don't have that defence in this case. But no, if, you can, if it's true, that's, not, that's a defence to defamation. If it is fair comment or, or opinion, so it's my opinion of you. I'm not, I'm not saying it is an objective fact. I'm not motivated by malice. I just don't think you, I like you or something like that. That's not defamation. If it is reporting the news, that's another defense. And then you get into really complicated legal arguments about things called uh, absolute and qualified privilege, which I'm not going to bore the listeners <laughs> with now. But basically, in short, it's if someone has a lawful interest in knowing something and you're not motivated by malice, you may be able to tell them something defamatory. What it should come down to for most businesses is, is the comment that is up online arguably true or substantially true, or is it just someone's opinion? If it's one of those two things, you probably don't have a decent case for defamation. If it is demonstrably untrue, if it is a statement of what is alleged to be a fact, and one of the other exceptions doesn't apply, you may well have a case for defamation. You then have to think, though, what are you going to do about it? Yes. So I can tell you from long experience 
that Facebook and Google and Twitter will very rarely take posts down because you say it's defamatory. They want a court order to prove that it is before they will do anything about it. And the other thing that can happen is if you even if you do convince them to take it down, what stops the person from posting it back up again and you're in the same situation? We are starting to see some of the case law move on this. And there was a decision here in South Australia a few years ago involving Google where someone was successful in suing Google for search results that defamed her. There was a less successful case in Victoria, which we actually went to the High Court, where someone was suing because if you typed his name into a Google image search, a bunch of pictures of uh, known underworld figures came up. Oh. Uh, I, I, he didn't succeed on that one. One really interesting one, there was a case involving Twitter. This isn't a defamation case, but the principle's really interesting. I think. I'm a lawyer. I would, wouldn't I? But... What happened there was someone was posting confidential information of a company up on Twitter. And the company complained to Twitter and Twitter took it down, but the person put it back up, put it back up. And so the company sued Twitter and said, you just need to stop this from happening at all. And the court upheld that. They issued what is called a continuing injunction, which said that Twitter had to implement technological measures to prevent that content from being posted again. If that is applied across the board, we might well see situations, and I've got a couple of cases which we're actually exploring this at the moment, where social media companies will be required to censor content to prevent defamatory content or confidential information from being posted. Wow, that's going to be really fascinating. Mm. And um, <laughs> so much to think about here. <laughs> and, and where it, 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 this actually then intersects with uh, what we were talking about before with responsibility for news agencies. So I don't know if you followed what happened with uh, Dylan Voller, who was uh, the young man who was detained at Dondale Detention Centre. You might have seen the pictures some years ago with him wearing a spit hood chained to a chair. Yes, yes. Yeah. So that image was used as part of a number of news articles across pretty much every media outlet that you can think of. And some of those media outlets allowed comments to be made on their news articles. And let's just say the comment section is not kind. No. And so there were some incredibly horrific things said about Mr. Vola on those comments unquestionably defamatory. He has sued all of those media companies for defamation. Now, they are saying, well, we didn't post it. How are we to have known that this was defamatory? We, you know, it's third-party content. And the first that they heard of his concern was when he served court papers on them. And so they're saying, you didn't even ask us to take it down. Which was going to be another one of my questions, even though we are avoiding, you know, all of these cases need to be taken on an individual basis. But is there any general guidance you could offer to people that if they do see something posted about them that they feel falls into actual defamation under, you know, being mm. untrue or the other one? <laughs> Not being an opinion. Not being an opinion. <laughs> Sorry, I am actually paying attention. Kind of feel you know we're talking about the internet being being very US centric and there's 
actually I probably should be careful about what I say. To you as being being very you know a very liable, um, very litigious, society. litigious society, and it's it's not something that I necessarily you know we are obviously part of the World Wide Web and the whole world, but something I've always kind of prided Australia on is not being quite as litigious. Mm. Are there some steps we should be taking beforehand to actually be contacting, you know, is it generally recommended depending on the circumstance to contact directly and ask for the content to be removed or explain that it is false or it is defamatory before taking legal action? The only people who will ever win from litigation are the lawyers. It's... The, the simple truth that the cost, not just in money, but the emotional cost, the publicity. I mean, just look at poor Jeffrey Rush, who uh, has had his name completely slandered all, all over the world. He, he won, so he was able to demonstrate that it was defamatory, but still. If you feel that you are the subject of a defamatory post, you should absolutely try and communicate with the person who has posted it and try and come to a resolution. In fact, in most circumstances, you are required to do that. So the Defamation Act says that you need to put forward what's called a concerns notice 21 days before you take action. So I'm not sure how you got away with that in the normal case. That's, I haven't actually looked into that. But you are required to do that in the first place. And realistically, you might be able to get the outcome you want rather than having to go through the pain and cost of litigation to get that outcome. That's some really great advice there. Um, if you do want to take action, <laughs> then uh, I'm sure my uh, contact emails will be in the episode notes. <laughs> so feel free to contact Paul if you have any concerns. My other question as well, and this is something I'm not aware of and haven't run past you already, but in regards to this type of content, we are seeing much more activity happening on messaging apps and more peer-to-peer mm-hmm. communication. So it's through Messenger or WhatsApp or even, I mean, I'm sure there would be some history of this with even one-to-one emails. How does that fall in these types of situations where we're talking about defamation, slander, where, yeah, content, or even closed Facebook groups? Like, I see, you know, content that's been screenshotted from a closed Facebook group and shared elsewhere, and there's some concerns about, you know, this shouldn't have actually been taken out of this this environment, and some groups have guidelines surrounding that. Are those aspects covered specifically, or... It comes under the same umbrella. So the way the defamation works is that I can, to your face in a private room, defame you. I can say to you what, what I want. I can call you every name under the sun. That is not defamation. It is only defamation if it is published, and by published and publishes as a really broad meaning here. It means effectively communicated to a third party. So if I'm in a one-on-one WhatsApp chat with you, and I say something to you that is defamatory, and you are the only person who has received that, assuming that WhatsApp aren't reading your messages, and who knows, maybe they are. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a hell of a job. But anyway, assuming what, no one else is reading them, if it's a one-on-one communication, that is not defamation. The minute there is another person involved in the conversation, it is. And the other thing is, if I say something defamatory to you in writing and you show it to someone else, I have not published it, and therefore I am not responsible for it. It's your fault that you went around and showed everyone that I'd said something nasty. Okay. And what about to then take another tact? If I'm talking to somebody else in my WhatsApp group, someone else, and saying, Paul's a rubbish lawyer. He doesn't know what he's talking about. 
That would be defamation because Correct. they're the third party. Correct. And closed groups does not save you. Stop whinging about people online. <laughs> <laughs> if you can figure out a way to do that. Oh, yeah. You can firstly destroy my business, but secondly. <laughs> Thankfully, Paul is a very good lawyer. <laughs> Okay, so you've given us lots lots to think about there in regards to uh, copyright, responsibility for what's posted, and a bit, you know, better understanding of what constitutes defamation online. And like I said, they're the kind of most common questions that you tend to get asked about and, and tagged in on the many groups that we're both in. Is there anything that you wish people would ask you about more in this area? I think that I'd like people to think more about uh, privacy. So privacy is an area that a lot of people are starting to think about, but they often don't think it applies to them. And this is especially acute with the GDPR that came in in May last year, mm. uh, which is, for those who, who don't know the acronym, is the General Data Protection Regulation out of the EU, which basically says that if you are doing anything that touches information of people in the EU, then you need to comply with EU laws or they will fine you a stupid amount of money. Um, which I think really should be what they wrote in the regulation rather than whatever the figure was. And the reason why that's important is that in Australia, the Privacy Act doesn't really touch a lot of small businesses. It doesn't really touch a lot of individuals because unless you are earning over $3 million a year in revenue or more, you generally aren't hit by the Privacy Act. The only other exceptions are if you are in a health service, so that could be medicine, fitness, diet and weight loss, or if you are dealing in data. So the GDPR is new in the sense that there are people who previously had no privacy obligations here in Australia, but now suddenly do. But the other thing, that, and I think this is where it really um, is something I, I worry about for people, is that just because you're not turning over three mil doesn't give you a leave pass to then do what you want with data. because. The moment you start doing things like selling Facebook followings or um, you know, transferring your, your Instagram account to someone else, you are then t deemed to be dealing in data and you are suddenly captured by the Privacy Act. Okay. So whilst you previously didn't have to have a privacy policy, you didn't have to tell anyone what you were doing with their information, you could do what you like, all of those obligations hit home the minute you start doing that. Okay. And the penalties in Australia, whilst they're not stupidly big like they are in the EU, they're still significant. You know, we're talking $370,000 for an individual and $1.7 million for companies. So they're still pretty, a decent amount of money? I, I don't have that lying around personally. No. So, yeah, I, I think people just need to be aware that whilst individuals may put their private information up online, that's not an invitation to misuse it. You need to be really respectful and careful about what you do with your followers, what you do with user-generated content, all of those different elements that touch on people's personal information. Yeah. And I think even though the GDPR doesn't specifically apply to all Australian businesses unless they're actively doing business in the EU, it's certainly been well, it's shaken up a lot of platforms and a lot mm. of businesses all over the world and yeah. <laughs> lots of new features and and functions coming out in a lot of the tools which is great to yes. help us take into consideration but it has really brought well, in some instances that 
understanding and consideration of privacy a bit more front of mind Mm. and people are becoming more aware of the amount of information that they're sharing, how the internet and cookies and remarketing works and all of those types of things. And I mean, personally, I think it's good Mm. for businesses and marketers globally to be taking this into consideration and, and thinking about how we can be more considerate of what data we're collecting in the first place yes and then how we're actually managing it and using it and communicating that with people both at that collection and at that use point as well so are there any general suggestions that you would give to again not legal advice but to (laughs) to businesses if, if they don't know where to start from a privacy perspective and and they're not necessarily hitting that that three million dollar turnover where it is becoming a a huge consideration but what some general best practices are in regards to privacy so there are some great resources provided by the government um so if you go to oaic.gov.au which is the office of the australian information commissioner there are fact sheets there are guides to the privacy act that are very well written so that's a good resource as a starting point to think about, you know, do I need to worry about privacy? We'll include that in the show notes as well. Having a privacy policy of some kind is really best practice, whether you are caught by the Privacy Act or not, mainly because it sets expectations. And that really, I think, is where people fall into difficulty. If you're telling people up front, this is what information I'm collecting, this is how I'm going to use it, and this is who I'm going to disclose it to, if they then decide to give you that information, Realistically, they've got nothing to complain about. In situations where people use information without explaining what they're doing or without giving any notice that we really see individuals getting upset, complaints being made to the commissioner, and people getting prosecuted. It's certainly a minefield, that's for sure. (laughs) It comes up a lot in a lot of the web training Mm. workshops that we do where where a lot of people are asking more questions about, you know, do I need a privacy policy? Do I need to have these cookies notification that pops up? And all of these types of things. So um, I said it needs to be obviously addressed on that that case-by-case basis as well. But I think there is some, you know, general Mm. best practices that we can follow if we are choosing to promote our businesses online and particularly gather information or take, you know, source inquiries or those types of things from, from people to, like you say, set those expectations around what their information is, sorry, how their information is, is going to be used. So thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> Any other tips for us, online lawyer? I think that really the, the best tip I can give is don't be afraid to ask for help. If you have a difficult situation arise online, someone said the wrong thing or you've used the wrong content, just uh, firstly reach out to the social media community because it's incredible. I've never seen such a supportive community as uh, community managers and social media professionals because everyone has these issues arise from time to time and you can learn from other people's experience. I think be careful with what you, you post, but don't be afraid to still go out there and, and say things and do things and share content because otherwise what's the point? Overall, yeah, just be sensible. Use common sense. That's great. Thank you so much for that. And we will include all of those links to the resources that we've discussed in the show notes because there were quite a few there and a few little <laughs> acronyms and bits and pieces as well as Paul's 
contact details as much as he's willing to share in case you do have any direct questions of him. So just to wrap up with a few more personal questions, okay. Paul, after, well, depends how personal you want to get with him. <laughs> Who or what inspires and motivates you? So I guess it's in, in a variety of different contexts as different people. As a lawyer, I'm inspired by people like Julian Burnside who do incredible work for those who, who don't have a voice um, and, and from groups like the Australian Council of Civil Liberties and, and things like that. So that really does inspire me and, and drives a lot of the uh, pro bono work that I do as well. From a digital perspective, there are too many people to name in, in social who just kick goals and do incredible work. Um, so I'm just inspired by them as well. One of the purposes of this podcast is to help listeners learn through the stories and experiences of other people as we're learning more about the online space and law today. Is there anything that you're learning at the moment, professional or otherwise? So one of the things which um, I think you do know about me is that I, I'm a keen improviser, so I do uh, improvise theatre, so I'm currently doing some workshops with that, but I'm also listening to a lot of podcasts about improvisation because I'm constantly trying to get better and make less of a fool of myself on stage or make a better fool of myself on stage, <laughs> as the case may be. Oh, and I love that you mentioned that there are podcasts about improvisation as well because one of the things I do love about the podcast community is often there are these little, like, niche areas <laughs> where we talk about getting into podcasting. I wouldn't have even thought that, yep. that there's podcasts and ways that you can learn about that. But, yes, I have I have heard about your improvisation. I'm slightly <laughs> nervous about this interview today because I was like, if he pulls out some improv on me, I'm going to be full of flutter, <laughs> not know what to do. And if you had one tip that you could share with people to help them be prepared to do their best online, what would it be? Be thoughtful in what you do. Really, that's what it all comes down to. If you are thinking carefully about what you're doing, even um, from deciding what to do and how to do it, just think, think before you post. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. Really appreciate this. Like I said, we'll include the links for... Paul's contact details in the show notes. Is there a best place that you prefer people getting contact to you, with you um, through? Email's great, uh, but otherwise you can find me on Twitter at Paul Gordon um, or hit me up on Facebook. Thanks so much, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Dobcast. I hope you feel inspired and prepared to do your best online. If you'd like to learn more about us and see our other content and resources, you can visit thedobcast.com or scoutdigitaltraining.com.au.